Welcome back to Mission is Possible. I'm Sasha O'Connell, and I'm thrilled to be introducing this mini-series of the Mission is Possible podcast, a joint project between GuideHouse and the School of Public Affairs at American University. This spin-off series dives into the world of presidential transitions and explores what can be expected inside national security agencies during this time frame and how best to prepare for success by talking with the folks who have been there. Thank you for tuning in and please enjoy. Prior to the election, I had a chance to sit down with Michael Daniel, who currently serves as the president and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Michael previously served on the National Security Council staff from 2012 to 2017, and prior to that was in a leadership role at the Office of Management and Budget. In this episode, Michael shares his varied perspectives from his career in government about the most successful transitions he's experienced and shares the associated best practices that made them go so smoothly. So we thought, Michael, the best thing to do to start, if you could, just maybe give us a short background. You have a storied career in federal government. We're particularly interested in your experiences during times of presidential transition. Can you talk a little bit about where you were and what that looked like from where you sat? Sure. I served for 21 and a half years in the federal government, starting from 1995 through early 2017. And I worked in two different places, one, the Office of Management and Budget, and the other, the National Security Council. And both of those are part of the executive office of the president. So the broader set of agencies that directly support the president of the United States. And in that position, in particular at OMB, there's a very strong role in any sort of transition process that goes on. So that's really the vantage point that I had was working in those agencies and going through multiple uh, transitions. So thank you so much for that. That's so helpful. So what do you think from that perspective of where you sat is the secret ingredient to a good transition between administrations? What do you think makes it more difficult than necessary? Or, or if you can maybe talk about some examples of things that went well? Sure. Well, one thing I can say is any transition is going to be chaotic and difficult. There's just no two ways about it. The nature of transitioning from one administration to another is always going to come with some bumps, right? And a transition from one party to the other is particularly fraught with challenges. There is an inherent level of distrust that you have to work with and you have to overcome so that there is no sort of perfect transition. That said, I do think that we certainly have had examples of transitions that have actually run remarkably well given those constraints. In particular, I think the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration in 2008 to 2009 was particularly noteworthy because of the professionalism with which it was carried out. And some of that is the result of President Bush being very clear from the very, very beginning that he expected his administration to do a professional job in the transition and President Obama expecting that the transition team would be respectful of the then current administration and the transition process. As a result of both of those leaders' emphasis on that, I think it it established the right sort of atmosphere for the transition. And so to me, that's really one one of the key ingredients. But I do think that another aspect of a good transition is also being organized about it, right? And really being intentional about understanding the policy goals and priorities of 
particularly the incoming administration and how they want to set that up. And then thinking about the programs that already exist and how you can leverage the existing structures to support those new policy goals. In terms of those existing structures, obviously with your expertise at OMB, can you talk a little bit for our folks and our listeners in the national security sector about what they can expect in terms of the impact of a transition on the budget process? One of those things that sort of must turn on. Yes. I know this is near and dear to your heart. Yeah, so inevitably a presidential transition, particularly from, well, if it's from one term to a second term, the impact is virtually nil. The budget process pretty much goes on as you would expect. If you were actually switching from one administration to another, regardless if you're sort of at the end of a second term headed to the same party or a different party, that throws a big monkey wrench into the budget process because the transition from the budget process standpoint could not happen at a worse time, right? And so what ends up inevitably happening is the budget process gets broken into really two different parts. And there's sort of the technical part that OMB and the agencies will go ahead and do, because there's a lot of background work that has to go on that's very detailed, that involves compiling information about what has actually happened in the past, like what the budget that's already been executed and how the current year is already being shaped. And all of that can be done because those are that's factual. That is what has happened and isn't determined by policy. So you go ahead and you work on that part and you set the you set the baseline. But then the new incoming administration is going to want to have an impact on the policy of the budget that's sent up. But inevitably, just given the timeline, the fact that they don't have as many people ready, that first budget that they send up is very limited in the way that it can shape policy. It's really not until the next cycle that an incoming administration can really shape the budget policy from beginning to end. And so that makes that part of the process particularly fraught. You often have people who are coming in who don't actually understand all the ins and outs of the federal budgeting process. And so they're also trying to get up to speed on how that on how that works, particularly if they've not had previous government experience. Government budgeting is nothing like how it works in the private sector. So that's a steep learning curve for people to get up. And then I know you and I have talked about other kind of processes that must go on and that distinction between for a transition policy change and process change. Can you talk yep. a little bit more about that and sort of how that might look from, again, a department or agency perspective as a new administration or a second term leadership comes in? At the presidential level, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that when you have For many parts of the White House, when you have a switch to a new president, so not a second term, but a new new president, when the people show up, there is nothing. So like even if you're on the NSC staff, right, you have to go through an enormous hoop to retain any of your records, emails, anything from the previous administration. It's like they start with a completely clean slate. So there's nothing, right? And so they have to make it so there's this tendency to want to try to make up things from scratch, right? Because there's a lot of that existing infrastructure doesn't exist. And so they have a lot of control over how that those processes change and what they look like. Now, if you're at OMB, that's a different story because they're a slightly different kind of agency and you, you can retain records across presidential administrations more easily. 
So as a result, the Office of Management and Budget becomes the repository of a lot of the institutional knowledge within the White House about how things actually get done. And because of that, processes can change and are going to change at the White House level because a new president is going to have his own way of, of running things, and that's going to be reflected in NSC processes and White House processes, and it's going to take a while for that to get established. It's so interesting. I never thought about that sort of the continuity of operations just in terms of documentation. So interesting. In that vein, when you think about that kind of change, whether it's for policy or process, can you talk a little bit about the role of language and kind of branding and how people use language? So there's often, I mean, we used to have a joke at OMB about when you got to change administration that it was time to pack up all of the previous parties' names and switch them out and get out the incoming parties' names and just drop them in there because they were all actually the same program. They just had different names. And that, of course, is not actually true, but there's some truth to that. And any administration is going to want to have its branding, the way that it talks about how it does support for the middle class or government reform or healthcare issues or national security issues. They're all going to have ways that they talk about it. And they're going to want their programs, their policies to reflect that language and that terminology. But the truth is that a lot of times the difference in terminology actually obscures a broader agreement in a lot of policy. And so one of the recommendations I always have for folks in the national security world is before you get your hackles up about uh, a change in name, think about whether or not the change in name actually really matters to the mission and goal of the program. And that's very important for thinking through this. Now, sometimes it will. Sometimes it will, because they will, the new administration will have different ideas about what the priorities are. And just because the previous administration cared about this particular program to assist this group in that country, right, that you may have been working on, that may not be a priority anymore. But it also may be the case that they want to slightly refocus it and rebrand it, and it's largely the same mission. And that's okay, because that's, that's how our system is supposed to work. That's why we have the democratic process. So I think that's very important for people to keep in mind about when you think about what's actually changing and what's actually going on. That's super helpful. And I can imagine, again, having been a career federal employee, you know, coming in, you're pretty defensive, right? About a decade's worth of work in an area that has had general consensus. But I hear what you're saying in terms of sort of being open-minded. I can imagine it might take a little bit of time, too, for a new leader, a new administration to sort of suss out for those who've been very involved in the details of programs, like, is this really about language and we can just agree? Or is this about <laughs> a real difference in priority, right? Because sometimes in my experience, maybe people aren't it's not 100% clear in the beginning of these conversations where this language change is coming from. Does that resonate with you? I just think it might take a little time. Some patience might be required, yeah. Absolutely. And again, it depends on the experience of the people coming in, right, about how much do they know about how the government does things and why the government does things. One of the primary issues that I think has really emerged, and this is broader about, I think, about how we as Americans think about government and the civil service and others. So I'll give you a very clear example. There are many, many frustrations with the acquisition process for very legitimate reasons. It is too slow. It is too cumbersome. But it's set up that way because in many cases, we wanted the government to be fair. And we wanted the government to actually 
consider a whole bunch of things that we never ask any private sector company to think about when it makes an acquisition in terms of actually being fair to certain groups in society or being fair among competitors. Like, as long as you're not violating antitrust laws, like, we don't actually tell the private sector, you can't favor this vendor over another, but we expect that of the government, right? And that imposes a process cost. And so, from my perspective, one of the things that is the job of the career staff at a place like OMB is to help educate the incoming administration on, here's how you can get your policy goals achieved, let us help you achieve your policy goals and help you figure out the right levers to pull inside government, because it may not be obvious if you haven't lived through this and lived in this environment about how you actually get to the endpoint that you want. And I would extend that to most of the national security community of saying that part of the job during a transition is to help educate the new leaders on how they can actually achieve what they want to achieve. And that is a, that's an absolutely critical part of managing a, a, a transition. So interesting. Switching gears a little bit, but sort of staying on the theme of education and sort of understanding how things work, something near and dear to my heart for sure is the NSC and how it works, right? So could you maybe start for our listeners again, whether they're in departments and agencies now or maybe people thinking about coming in in the next term for Trump or for a Biden administration. Can you give us a little one-on-one on the NSC to start? And then like you did explain for OMB, what's the role of an NSC during a transition? How does that work? What can the departments and agencies expect? What could new leaders expect in terms of interaction there? How does that all work? Yeah. So when you think about the National Security Council staff, so the NSC itself is by statute made up of the heads of departments and agencies, right? It's the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the Director of National Intelligence and others that are explicitly called out in the statute. And the staff that work there for the National Security Advisor, who is also part of the National Security Council, the staff's job is to really enable that policy process to occur and for the U.S. government to arrive at policy decisions that reflect the input from across the federal government and all the different departments and agencies that you get all of those interests and point of view reflected in the policy decision-making process. And it is really about how you structure a decision-making process. That's what the NSC is all about. And how do you set priorities, make decisions, and then carry them out? That is really the bread and butter of of the NSC. Shaping that policy, getting consensus, and then and arriving at a consensus across all of the different elements regarding policy and teeing up those policy decisions. So the NSC staff's job is to really try to clarify what the policy issues are, where are the disagreements, to sharpen those disagreements so that it's clear what is the decision that we're asking the seniors to actually make so that you sort of strip away all of the extraneous, not extraneous, but all of the stuff where there's actually agreement and you strip away all the parts where it's actually just difference in words and focus in on where the actual policy disagreements are. And then the NSC has a machinery that's actually designed to enable that to happen in some sort of organized fashion where we keep a record of it. So that's what the NSC does. So during a transition, the NSC is really designed to enable the incoming administration to begin making decisions, 
and to keep a record of those decisions. That's really what the NSC is all about. And it's focused largely in the national security area because of the nature of the issues that it covers. So you can sort of see that as intelligence, military, foreign policy, and associated issues. I think what's been interesting is that the NSC's mandate has had to expand some over the last particularly 20 years as we've added some things that are clearly national security, but have implications that go well beyond that. For example, cybersecurity, which was my area on the NSC. You know, you ask, is that a national security issue? Yes. Is it an economic issue? Yes. Is it a public health and safety issue? Yes. It's all of those things. So the NSC's mandate has expanded some, and particularly in some of the science and technology areas that have national security implications, but that's really what the focus of the, the NSC is. That's so helpful. And what recommendations or advice would you have for someone maybe who's coming in in a new senior political role in a national security agency who hasn't interacted with the NSC before, someone who is preparing to come in after they find out the results of the election this year, and they're trying to get their minds around the NSC. And to, I know it depends on level, but are there misconceptions that folks have when they come in, things that you wish folks when you were sort of sitting there new before they came to you to interact with you? What advice or suggestions or kind of myths can you bust on the NSC for folks who may be coming in after the election? Yeah, so the the NSC is made up of mostly detailees from the agencies, right? And there's a very deliberate reason for that, because there's a strong desire to make sure that the expertise and understanding and that connectivity back to an agency is actually there, so that that expertise is brought to the NSC. But the NSC's job is to really shape up the policy decisions for the deputy secretary and the secretary level, and ultimately the presidential level. That's the NSC's job. And so they're not doing their job if they don't fairly represent all of the different points of view from across the government. That, it's really their job to synthesize that, that information and that point of view. So if you ask any agency, they will always tell you that the NSC is biased against them, right? Because they don't always agree with everything that the agency puts forward. And, but the truth is, if you understand that the NSC is trying, when it is working well, it is trying to really shape up those policy decisions. And it is, it is going to take your agency's point of view into account. And that, in fact, I, and I made this argument when I was at OMB as well, that there are many times when your point of contact on the NSC may in fact be your strongest advocate inside the White House for your agency's point of view. And so the best way to interact is to make sure that the NSC staff have all of the best information that they possibly can, understanding that there are constraints, particularly your experience over DOJ, right? There are things that are not appropriate to go to the White House. Got that. But for those things that are going to the White House, like that they have the best information possible and have an open communication channel. It will not always be pleasant and it will not always be easy, but in the long run, that will pay a lot of dividends. And I assume it's similar, but would you have the same advice for OMB? So if I'm a new political coming in, thinking about how to get my mind around interacting with OMB, can you explain a little bit about the two sides of OMB for folks? And again, what does it mean to have an examiner and kind of how do those relationships work? 
Yeah, so broadly, OMB is divided into the budget half and the management half, as, as its name might imply. And so the budget half of OMB is really structured around the different departments and agencies. So there's a national security division at OMB that I served in for, for many, many years. That actually has four different parts to it. One part that works on the operational side of DOD, so how the the ships and the plane, planes and the tanks and bases get run on a day-to-day basis and how we pay people. There's another part that deals with how we acquire weapons and other systems and how we do R&D. There's a branch that works on healthcare and the VA department. And then there was the one that I ran for over a decade, which deals with intelligence programs and all the black spooky stuff that the U.S. government does. But Across OMB on the examiner side, the examiners are really charged with understanding how the money works for their various programs. And most agencies have a very intense love-hate relationship with OMB, right? Because it's the OMB OMB examiner's job to say no. And we say no a lot. And we're the ones that would tell you that that idea is half-baked. It's time to go back in the oven. And yet, the smart agencies, the ones that actually knew how to work the system, you could see they would build that long-term relationship with their examiner, knowing that sometimes they were going to get told no, knowing that sometimes the results would not be what they wanted. But in the long run, it would pay dividends to have that relationship because, again, that examiner, when they go in to talk with their boss, when they go in to talk with the division head, when they go to talk with the OMB director, That examiner is your advocate. They're the ones that are arguing, hey, this is what this program needs in order to accomplish this goal. If broadly the administration wants this program to do X, they got to have at least Y in terms of money, right? And they're the ones that are actually making that that argument inside the administration. And so really on the budget side, it's about putting the budget together, assembling it into a coherent whole, then helping to defend that budget with Congress, and then seeing how that budget is actually executed. In fact, the history of OMB is that it was created primarily as an execution oversight agency. It was originally created at the behest of Congress because Congress got tired of agencies spending all of their money in the first half of the fiscal year and then coming back and asking for more. So they created the Bureau of the Budget at the time to ensure that agencies stretched their budget to last the entire fiscal year. That was actually the genesis uh, of OMB. Now, later on, we added some management functions. And so that's the other side of OMB. So those tend to be more functional parts of OMB. So there's a part of OMB that works on financial regulations. So how the government does its finances and counts its books. There's a part of OMB that works on regulations. And if you want to promulgate a new regulation that's of any significance, really, it's going to go through OMB. For review. There's a part of OMB that works on procurement policy. There's a part of OMB that works on cybersecurity for the federal government and IT policy. So those are the functional sides of OMB. And within OMB, those functional sides and the budget side work together a lot on, on policy issues. So yeah, the Office of Management and Budget is an interesting agency that a lot of people, if you're not actually part of the Washington sort of establishment, if you will, you've probably never heard of it, but it does have a lot of influence. Absolutely. It's so great to talk to you because I think 
for folks coming potentially in from outside of government, both the NSC and OMB, right, kind of mysterious and actually right. incredibly important for leadership of departments or agencies. So thank you so much for the overview. It's so helpful. One more question from an advice perspective. One of the lessons I took away when I had the opportunity to start doing some policy work with the NSC at the Bureau, is that I had always understood that personal relationships were really important inside the FBI. I had sort of grown up at the FBI, and I knew that's how you sort of got things done and the importance of that trust. And then when I started interacting with the NSC and the interagency, I started to realize the importance of relationships more broadly, right, at the highest levels. Like, this is how, this is how everything gets done. Can you talk about that a little bit? And again, potential listener here who might be coming in from the private sector and just sort of talk about how your experience with those building those relationships or potentially someone listening to this in a department or agency who has their existing relationships that are about to change over and any advice or suggestions or things to avoid when you think about that whole relationship piece during a transition. Yeah, I mean, I think the it's really no different than a lot of other aspects of our lives, right? That those relationships are how as you said, Sasha, how things get done. And it's not that there's not institutional relationships, right? And in fact, we work very hard at building the institutional relationships, so it's not entirely personality dependent. But I think sort of what you really want to build is that level of trust. If your point of contact on the NSC calls and says, hey, what the heck is actually going on? What on earth was this latest policy intervention from the Bureau? What is driving that? that you actually have the trust to be able to give a little bit of the insight of, okay, here's the issues that are driving us so that you can understand why we're taking this position, right? And similarly, you want to be able to call your point of contact at OMB and say, what on earth was that decision? Like, how did that happen, right? Okay, well, let's, let's back up and let's talk about this other part over here that you didn't see because the president said, I got to do this and made this commitment over here and that flowed down this way. You want to be able to get that kind of explanation because a lot of that is never going to be put in writing and it's not going to be reflected in official decision memos, but it's very important to understanding how that communication flows. And a lot of that is really the job of those examiners and the directors on the UNSC to actually, to actually do that. And that really helps the decision-making process in both directions. If you bring that attitude that everybody is trying to really protect our national security, enhance our foreign policy, and that there's going to be disagreements over priorities and exactly how to do that, but there's not disagreement over that fundamental premise, then things actually work much better. That's perfect. Yeah, it definitely aligns with my experience in terms of the importance also of that explanation of decisions being shared both directions, because once that breaks down and it's all in track changes in Word documents on email, things go sideways and and it just moves off the rails of productivity, right? And having those in-person conversations or those phone conversations, extraordinarily important to kind of keep things on track in terms of decision-making, my experience. Well, this has been great. Before we let you go, is there anything... I haven't asked you, you would want to share in terms of your experience or things to avoid or advice you have for folks, again, either sitting in the departments and agencies contemplating sort of some change at some level coming or folks coming in, right, to take senior leadership roles who are thinking about kind of navigating this change time. Anything else we didn't ask you that you would want to add before we let you go? It's important to just understand that there are going to be some 
some dropped balls, there's going to be some gaps, there's going to be some some difficult times, but that overall, the system is designed to enable you to overcome that and to eventually it will get built up in a way that will enable that decision-making process to occur. So that, to me, that's really the, the core of it. The other thing I'll just say is that I think you and I have talked before about the joke that the previous OMB director had about he finally understood the OMB career staff when he realized that if the Martians landed and took over the government, that the Washington Post could run a headline that says, Martians invade, seize power in Washington, OMB prepares for transition. There is some great truth to that, that the career staff within OMB very much see themselves as serving the office of the presidency. They will very much take their job as ensuring as smooth a transition as they can possibly make given the constraints that they're working under, but they will work very hard to make that happen. Awesome. Seems like a great place to go and to end. Thank you so much for your time. I know this has been extremely helpful for me and I know our listeners as well. Great. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mission is Possible, the presidential transition miniseries. If you're interested in hearing more, look out for new episodes in the special series and check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or on the GuideHouse website.